Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. Hey, my name's Dave. I'm calling in from Iowa. Uh, I got an advance here for your uh, uh, podcast with Isaac Weishop. Man, that dude knows his stuff. Awesome job, guys. He uh, tipped me to listen to your guys' podcast, so I subscribed. And uh, it's in my new um, uh, listening. So thanks, guys. Appreciate it. You guys are doing awesome. Bye. big thanks to dave from iowa for calling in please do give us a call the number is 586-89-HUMAN we'd really love to hear from you that's 586-894-8626 such a great interview here with rock i think you guys will really enjoy hearing it please do take a moment to donate it helps us keep the server running subscribe to our youtube channel and follow us on twitter Hugely fun episode here, guys. Thank you so much for listening. The human experience is entering the galactic center of the galaxy. My co-host, Dr. G, is co-pilot. Our guest tonight is researcher, author, and journeyer, Rock Razam. Rock, it's an honor to have you with us, man. Welcome to HXP. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Rock, I, I find your work highly intriguing, man. I, I really just briefly, could you tell us how you got into this this work? How does one get into the fields of consciousness and spirituality and shamanism? It's probably usually through psychedelics. I think that's probably the, the starting point. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, you could, you could trace back personality types or I, I say, you know, not, not jokingly really to some, most of my friends, I say, well, we're all the black sheep of the tribe. Um, I always seem to be someone who's, um, I don't know, maybe been on the outside looking in, you know, on the, as they say of the village shaman, you have to be sort of, uh, you know, of the world, but not in it. You need to be sort of on the edge to have that clearer perspective. Maybe that, that also um, applies to a whole generation of sort of, you know, otakus and shut-ins and, uh, you know, cyber sort of fiends who are amassing data. But for me personally, I guess um, it's just been a journey of, uh, of um, exploring my own consciousness and trying to figure out how that is embedded within a larger collective consciousness and a planetary organism and, you know, just ideas like this, I guess, a lot of the starting points we can all go back to, uh, you know, the great Terence, who uh, Terence McKenna, who, in many ways, is is I guess like you know the Moses of the Old Testament. He's sort of the the prophet who brought the uh, the uh, the Ten Commandments down in you know and chiseled them in stone. Or in this sense, what he did is really give a whole translinguistic palette of language and of ideas to a whole generation, starting in the well the seventies and eighties and nineties. I first encountered him in the, the 90s and was immediately, um, you know, sort of mimetically bromanced by him. And <laughs> yeah. uh, really, you know, a lot of his ideas I still find, and I find so many other commentators as well that I speak to in my global travels, 
we're all still using the same sort of uh, syntax and sort of linguistical sort of glue um, to frame a lot of the, the ideas that Terence did. And I think the challenge now is to go beyond Terence and to see a lot of his things as um, signposts and as ideas and as uh, you know, catalyst to, to get us to look at this, the, these these realms and the, the same invisible uh, canvas, but then to really go deeper with our own explorations and our own understandings of them all. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, so th- that actually is perfect. And and digging right in here, uh, how do you how do you feel about that, which is was once kind of underground and considered counterculture, but now is starting to become a sort of bleeding edge and, and filtering into the mainstream, like, for example, the, the work that the MAPS Institute is doing in Graham Hancock and Dennis McKenna. You're kind of taking on this, this role as well. How do you feel about that? Hmm. I don't know if I'll give you a single word answer maybe at the end of, of my, my summation here, but this is probably, I would say, this is the, the challenge of our times. And, you know, it's, it's not just with previously esoteric material like psychedelics or, or, or shamanism, as the world is becoming a globalized uh, circuit, basically, um, it's shining light on all the little nooks and crannies and the hidden things. And so we're seeing indigenous cultures and subcultures around the world be exposed into the light of the, the globalized society. And I think this is a necessary process, but as we all know, uh, the globalized process is being orchestrated by the powers that be and the moneyed interest and the elites and the uh, eventual one world government type of streams. I, I'm not going to get into disinformation, but if you really research the facts, if you read your Noam Chomsky, if you know your geopolitical situation, uh, it's really being orchestrated for the people that own the system. You know, like what I see happening beyond that or, or deeper than than the um, the socio-political stratum is that there there is a uh, well, I like to say a galactic season. There's a seasons. There's seasons of consciousness, and there's reasons why things happen at certain times. And so, the times we're living in now um, appear to be coming full circle back towards some type of. Uh, well, my shorthand is it's like four bar galactic godhead consciousness. It's like we've come through that whole 2012 meme, which was really pointing towards larger calendrical systems of time and world ages. And so this world age that we're coming into is the start of a new world age, which needs a new mythology, by the way, um, and which is developing rapidly around us as well. Um, But this process of transformation, this process of integration is tricky because especially with things like, you know, ayahuasca and shamanism, to to a large degree, we can talk about this publicly. It is becoming very public uh, information, but then it becomes a fad. It becomes a commodity because, you know, you, you look at, I, I talk about this a lot. I did a, um, a, a talk at uh, the Samara Shamanic Medicine Conference here in, uh, in Australia about a month ago, and I did uh, an update on uh, something I wrote for Graham Hancock's website uh, last year, which was the state of the vine, like the state of ayahuasca 2015. And if you look at just the, the cultural demographics, you have, you know, it's, it's, it's being used, uh, you know, by a large large subculture of people across the world, which is great in some senses because it's actually um, having to grow the vine and be sustainable on some levels, but it's creating supply and demand issues on other levels. But just on a media level and a cultural level, while the necessary healing of, of entheogens like ayahuasca can provide and the um, the opening up of consciousness to a larger perception of the world and of the web of life and of this idea of spirit, you know, and not just a consumerist, uh, materialist sort of um, groove, that's all good and well. But but servicing that on a large scale, like 
Lindsay Lohan about a year ago, last March or so, she tweeted to 8 million of her followers that she had done ayahuasca to, uh, to cope with the emotional trauma and processing issues around her miscarriage, which that's it's beautiful. It's a beautiful example of someone who needed the medicine and took it. But the issue and the larger issue is 8 million of her followers now have heard about ayahuasca. Marie Claire followed it up. All the Hollywood celebrity rags followed it up as well. And the, the brand of ayahuasca is now so hip and so such a cultural fad that the New York Times last May uh, did a, a write-up of it in, you know, its, um, its lifestyle section. And it, it's like, so the issues around this is the West has always, and always in recorded history, Western culture when the so-called first world encountered third world cultures or the old world and you know, discovered that they were using plant entheogens and then tried to eradicate them because they thought it was the work of the devil or kill off the populations of the, as well. It's it's always been um, trying to suppress plant entheogens and suppress this Gaian consciousness and this more perhaps feminine consciousness of this perception of Mother Nature and that we're just one species amongst it. But as this is coming to light, um, what what culture has always done for at least the last five six hundred years of, of recorded history. Every plant entheogen that it hasn't just suppressed, if it's absorbed it, going all the way back to stuff like tobacco, it has commodified it and it has diluted it and it has taken the sacred out of it and it's made it a product. And so the danger we're facing now across the board from ayahuasca, even with psilocybin, even with even with spirituality, you know, as a, as a packaged lifestyle choice, even with meditation, even with, um, you know, entrainment with EEG machines and gaming industry of, of getting into, you know, alpha, beta, gamma, delta states of mind, all the potentials which are necessary and a, a fantastic catalyst, all of them are there. The danger at the moment is if the lock on the culture, the cultural lock is still there about the commodity and the commodification of these things, it can take anything and the system will absorb it. If it can't destroy it, if it can't ignore it, you know, the old saying is first they ignore you, then they fight you, you know, then, right. then, then you win. Yeah. But the thing is, who is the we who wins? Because what happens in that scenario is if there's an absorption by the culture where you get absorbed by the larger culture and the culture goes, we can't destroy, ignore you, we can't destroy you, so we'll let you in. But how we do that? So if you look at things like the medicalization of psychedelics, this is wonderful on one level, and I totally support it. I've been a huge supporter of MAPS for many years, um, and they're doing some great work. There's just the the the, um, the Beckley uh, Foundation in the UK has just launched a crowdfunding campaign for the world's uh, first, uh, you know, quantitative um, electroencephalography scans, the EEG scans. Uh, and the MRI of uh, LSD study of someone on LSD to understand those regions of the brain. I've read a lot of flack online about people going, well, that's reductionist mechanical science. Why would we want to do that? I think, no, we need to do that. We need to embrace both hemispheres, both sort of paradigms of the, the mechanical, the science and the spiritual and the sacred. But the question is, Will science and will the Western materialist viewpoint, will it even acknowledge spirit? Will it acknowledge the sacred? You know, but I think that you know, we, we need to continue along that path and we need to um, we need to have focus and we need to have awareness as we do this. But this is this is the great the great challenge, I think, of our generation. I see you know, the danger is that medical psychedelics, as Rick Doblin's, um, the founder of MAPS's um, is vision, basically, is to have registered uh, psych psychologists dispensing uh, MDMA or LSD or, or, or entheogens or psychoactive drugs 
in a clinical setting, which may be nicely tempered and have mood lighting or even you know natural sounds, but it, it it's not it's not the shaman and it's not it's not the full connection to spirit. You know, if you even go all the way back to the '60s and some of the psilocybin tests and LSD tests and the the Harvard Divinity School tests that they did. You know, it's it's the fact that and they've done recent studies with psilocybin mushrooms again, looking at this issue of uh, invoking the divine and, and this this sense of the numinous. There's something greater than just our idea of medicine. And in indigenous cultures in, in Peru, when they say la medicina, they mean something very different from what we mean by it. They mean that there's a spirit in it. And what Western culture sees is it's a drug and they can patent it and they can control it and they can use it to commodify and perhaps be a soma for the masses. So, you know, there is a potential. If, if we look at the world situation, my God, it's fucked. I mean, really, <laughs> it's planet all well. It's planet all well. And, you know, there's global surveillance by all, all the major nation states there's repression, there's all the things that the horrors of the world are very, very stark and obvious now, which hopefully is a catalyst for people to rise up and take control of their world. And to do that, we need a clear consciousness. And that's where these substances can be of value. But the danger is they can also be absorbed and they can be used against us to, uh, to be a soma for the masses. So, so Rock, I fell in love with your um, Palenque Norte lecture from last year and the concept you had of going back to the garden and that we're getting the entheogens that we deserve. And we've had this kind of touch-and-go psychedelic renaissance. So what stage do you see us at in this gestational archaic revival we've been in since, say, the end of the Victorian area? We hit this stride in the 60s. Why are the plant medicines and these particular entheogens, such as ayahuasca, what we deserve right now? Yeah, this is a really good question. And be, actually, before I get to that bit, what I'd like to say is I, I really love to encourage, you know, the generation of, of psychonauts who are out there to use a lot more of this type of um, perspective, to, to use, you know, I don't know, maybe it's not statistical analysis, but to use logic and to use, um, you know, cultural sort of um, uh, appreciation and maybe anthropological perspectives, to use some of the tools that different, different um, arts and sciences have given us and apply it to the psychedelic dimension and the shamanic dimension because this is what we need to do. We, we, we no longer need Terence McKenna. He's done the job he needed to do. And, you know, what I said, what, what I say is that uh, my little shorthand is that in the, uh, in the 50s and 60s, you know, LSD opened the mind. In the 80s and through the 90s, ecstasy opened the heart. In the noughts and on into the 21st century, we're now seeing this burgeoning and really rapidly developing uh, culture around entheogens, which, you know, all the other drugs are still there, but the thing is they don't have the cachet that, that they used to because they're not needed. We had the acid revolution, and the acid revolution totally obliterated the white picket fence mentality of 1950s Americana, right, and, and of the Western world. And it shifted things. It paralleled a lot of social movements around civil rights and, you know, gender and identity and uh, sexuality. And, and those things were already happening. We can't say that acid per se um, instigated those things. But what it did is it, it, it changed the consciousness of a mass of people, a spike. You know, and that was the problem, that it created this equal and opposite reaction when the establishment had to, you know, uh, attack it aggressively like it was a cancer, but it was a virus. It was a cultural virus of consciousness that was instigated by LSD. Now, a lot of people were responsible for setting up the vectors of that virus. You know, there was the CIA, for, for one, as a major instigator, uh, the intelligentsia, people like Elgis Huxley and all the way back to Al Hubbard. But the, 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 the issue is 
it changed, it shifted consciousness. I have a, you know, I've deeply researched all the psychedelic history and written about it and I've got a, a few unpublished uh, non-fiction books about this as well. I did a, um, a biography of Bauer Owsley, the, the, the acid chemist, the al alchemist of the 60s, and in that I was looking at all the, uh, the history of the 60s and uh, there's a lot of synergy around things like why LSD was on the West Coast, uh, you know, who it was switching on, um, basically the, the ground zero for, for psychedelics in the West Coast in the late 50s through to the 60s was, uh, you know, around San Francisco, but even a bit further south, Palo Alto, which became Silicon Valley. And you've got to ask why, why did the CIA, and people say, why did the CIA from like 1949 you know, onwards experiment with LSD, looking for a truth serum originally, but then starting to uh, fund all these medical establishments and the psychoanalysis and psychiatrists and pump out LSD into the culture? It's support all the way through to the late 60s into the Haight-Ashbury as it was, and there was different factions and different reasons within those different factions, but my theory is someone, you know, the central intelligence, which is above the agency itself, hmm. someone knew what they were doing. And I think what they were doing is that they were stretching the envelope of our consciousness back in the, in the 60s. They knew it was all a big experiment, but what it did, it, it was almost like LSD was a psychic lubricant. And what it allowed, what it brought through mm. was what we have now. We have an ability for our minds and this, you know, it was the intelligentsia and, and the scientists and the computer technicians and all the companies of, of, of what became Silicon Valley, they were all using it for a creativity drug. drug. You look at Dr. James Fadiman who's written about this and he, he did the, the last legal studies with LSD but he was specifically looking at creativity and how it was being used while it was still legal by the, uh, the big corporations. And basically, you know, if you're going to bring in something like computing, which they've been working on since, you know, the, the, at least the 40s with all the original computers, but it was such a, a big shift in consciousness that they, they needed, you know, more people's consciousness to shift. And so basically this psychic lubricant meant that like things, now we have this understanding of like, you know, cloud computing, distributed computing, social networks, it's non-linear consciousness. And I think LSD broke the wave, it really pierced the veil of 1950s linear time and consciousness. And even on me, you could even, you know, argue maybe that's just on a morphic level, but I would say it's on a very physical level with select individuals in uh, different establishments and then in the culture itself. Yeah. So that shifted culture. And so we don't need that shift anymore. That And what, I, what I'm saying is even the players who on a socioeconomic political level were doing it for their vested interests what I'm saying is there is always a higher consciousness. There is always a more central intelligence. So there is there is a here. cosmic consciousness happening with these plants. Then is that what you're saying? Well, I, I believe it. And anyone who's really had an, a, a uh, you know a deep experience on any psychoactive substance that gets beyond their own ego, these things dissolve the ego. And when it dissolves, you pull into a, a larger consciousness. Whether you're out in nature and you realize nature's alive, or you you know whatever levels you go to. But so. You know, LSD totally shifted the psychic uh, envelope back in the 50s and 60s. And then what happened? It petered out. You know, it, it grounded. People went back to the earth. It shifted things. But then there was this equal and opposite re reaction, not just from the establishment making it uh, illegal and demonizing hippies. But then, funnily enough, you go through, you know, psychedelic rock 70s as it then 
disseminated further into the culture of people who didn't even take acid. But the the mind frame uh, changed, you know, and, and you can see that reflected in the cultural cues of, you know, the music and the fashions and things like that. But then, of course, after that, it swung back again because things go in a binary pulse and you have all the 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 um, the the yuppie era and the money era and the big Wall Street era and the start of the globalization era. So the powers that be were orchestrating socially engineering to bring things back to their agenda. But there's always a, a higher intelligence. But in that time, we had the ecstasy boom. And we know that, you know, that basically, even though it had been around since the, since the 30s or whatever, and, and, and uh, Sasha Shulgin helped popularize that in the late 70s, and there was a cultural vector of where that came through, why did it come through then? This is what I'm saying. If you look at like four-dimensional space-time and step up and look look at the dominoes falling and see the patterns, right. you will see that I really believe the culture gets the catalysts and the entheogens or the drugs or, or the you know the, the consciousness browsers, as I called them in my Palenque Norte talk, um, it deserves because we're being sculpted. We're being sculpted to play a larger role. And this is what they believe in shamanism, that the hum- humans are here on the earth to be a bridge between heaven and earth. And we're basically like energy transformers and we're transforming energy. And all the species are. We, we can see that. We can see the way that a species, you know, that we might study will take, you know, a chaotic system and create order from it. And it's changing around energy. So there's, there's a larger forces at work. So the 80s had all the ecstasy, um, you know, generation and they had the second summer of love in the UK. And, you know, that was all basically birthed from Goa where because the acid uh, retained and the, the, the core hippies who went over to India and Goa retained and made the music. And, you know, it birthed basically what we have now is global festival electronic music culture. And instead of being that spike of like a concentrated million people marching on the Pentagon trying to levitate it, you have like 100 million people across the planet quietly pursuing recreational use of psychedelics, but acid never became a big threat to the establishment again, and it wasn't needed by the culture. It's still a beautiful substance if used properly, uh, and it's a great initiation tool, but it's it's not getting the media attention. It's not a big thing. Culturally, it's just, it's, it's just like it's top kind shelf of- it's kind of a romantic notion, this idea that, you know, in 1945, your Oppenheimer is inventing the atomic bomb. And then on the other hand, you've got the invention of LSD. So it's almost a type of balance, right? It's almost quaint. It is a quaint. And, you know, a lot of the old school psychedelic uh, commentators will tell you this story. And it, it's gotten around. It's become part of the firmament of psychedelic mythology because there is a romanticism to it. And there's also perhaps something to it because... One of the originators of that theory that the fact that acid was sort of like an antidote to uh, to the atomic bomb, and you know, the, the, I think McKenna's shorterhand is which mush which mushroom do you want to bloom at the end of history, the atomic you know bomb cloud mushroom or or the the psilocybin mushroom. Uh, but one of the originators of this whole idea about the LSD was um, uh, Bear Owsley. And there's a, a lengthy passage in uh, one of Timothy Leary's books. It might be Flashbacks or High Priest. Uh, where he describes a meeting with Owsley talking about this theory, and that's how it basically got out. Owsley was an amazing, you know, super brain and, and genius even before LSD. And on LSD, he was, you know, the alchemist, really, like a, a very spiritual uh, uh, warrior, but also an amazing intelligence. And he studied this thing, and he, and he studied the Earth. And the Earth has, as a living organism, which we now, you know, back in the 60s, this, this wasn't, we didn't see the first shot of, uh, um, the Earth from Outer Space until 1969. It, it appeared on the whole Earth catalogue by, by Stuart Brand, the famous 
sort of quasi hippie, um, you know, catalogue book. And 1969 it wasn't until NASA took those photos. It's not until we get outside the box and look back down in we can really see for what it is. And so that idea of the Earth as an organism really only came in right at the end of the 60s into the 70s. Um, but Owsley had this idea of the Earth. He studied it, you know, from a scientific point of view. And we only got the uh, James Lovelock, the ex-NASA scientist, started to promulgate this idea of the Gaia hypothesis only in the 70s, right? Hmm. Um, of the idea of, you know, Gaia, the Greek goddess of the Earth, and the Earth as a living organism. Nowadays, they call it whole systems theory, which really flatlines the, the romanticism around it. But it's the idea that, you know, the Earth is not just a living organism, it's an interconnected, interdependent entity which has all these sub-programs within it that are all supporting life, you know? And it, make, it it's obvious now, but for some reason... Just, I, almost like the, the, the myth of, um, you know, when uh, we had this myth in, I think it's Australia, but no, was it, you know, the myth of like when in, indigenous people, you know, see the boats coming, you know, from mm, West yeah, when they're yeah. colon, and they can't, they can't see the boats because it doesn't fit their paradigm. It doesn't go into their, their world. And their belief structure, it, it, yeah. It's, it's almost the same with us. We didn't see the earth or Western culture because all indigenous cultures have always retained this idea. They live on the earth. They understand the rhythms of the earth. They quite often take psychoactive substances that the earth secretes specifically for engagement with herself at higher consciousness levels. But Western culture, which had atrophied and distanced itself from spirit and from the earth, um, didn't understand that earth was a living organism. So Owsley, you know, really grokked this idea. But he also took on board the science, and there's you know different layers to the Earth. You get into the upper atmosphere, the the ionosphere, and uh, different different levels. They're actually blocking out the the UV rays and the the deadly you know um, deep space radiation. You know, and so without those upper envelopes of protection, we would be we would be Earth, life on Earth would not be possible. You know, it's a very very delicate. Uh, balance to have life on Earth, perfect equilibrium, and you know physicists say this, science acknowledges this, and they just um, they just excuse it away with a with, with a phrase, you know, and say, well, it's just it's just this, we can't explain it, let's not think about it too much. But it's quite magical that life exists at all. Those upper levels of the atmosphere um, show that the the one thing that the womb of Earth fears is radiation. So Owsley, you know, took that along to the next extension and said, Jesus. Like, imagine if you've got a human body and some microbes in your body start to, like, you know, bomb you with radiation. It's like, it's like, it's like chemotherapy from the inside, but it's like a cancer. It's like the, the human race as a viral cancer cell gone rogue from the web of life and fallen out of a right relationship with the planet is now dropping atomic freaking bombs. It's splitting <clears throat> atoms. And it's, right. radiation is the one thing that the Earth fears. So that, that's equivalent to a cancer in the Earth system. So what is the Earth going to do? What is higher intelligence going to do? What does an interdependent um, you know, um, equilibrium system do? It counterbalances. And so his theory was, and, and I must say it, it, it's romantic, but there's something to it. And I think, again, the challenge of this generation of academics and scientists and, and just psychonauts is to look more deeply at these type of issues and apply more rigorous uh, you know, intelligence and science and systems to it to see how much veracity there is. But in the, the mythology, here's the thing. It's like Albert Hoffman, 1938, just on the cusp of war, you know, in Switzerland, which is neutral, of course, with the rise of Nazis. Albert Hoffman, documented on record, was in um, Switzerland and especially Basel. Basel, Switzerland, was in medieval times the home of the alchemists. You know, they know very well all about... Um, 
not just you know the, the lead to gold ideas, but they know very well about altered consciousness. Mm-hmm. There was Saint Elmo's fire, which was you know the ergo which would uh, develop on the barley rye and the bread, and in the Middle Ages people would be tripping balls right. and you know, getting gang- gangrenous legs and dying and stuff. But the thing is, it was quite well known. It was quite well known that there were funguses out there that would cause you to have altered states, especially in basil, which was um, you know hundreds and hundreds of years of um, esoteric knowledge. And you know it was only around the 1600s or so uh, that science and basically mysticism split. You know, you look at certain... Um, um, scientists back then, or what they would be now considered scientists, and they were they were alchemists, you know. So the the, the heritage and the legacy was there. Um, there's there's also this idea. There was a, a novel written called Saint Peter's Snow. You can get it on eBay. Uh, um, I think the author's name is Perlitz, something like that. But basically, the plot of Saint Peter's Snow is this um, basically analog of ergo ergo rye is developed by a modern scientist, turned into a drug, and switches on the world, right? It came out in 1922, so way before 1938. And it was, it was read by all the intelligentsia. It was a very well-known book at the time. Basil knew all about this. Albert Hoffman was in a um, basically a spiritualist group because he was a very spiritual man. At his 2006 uh, birthday, 100th birthday symposium in Basel, Switzerland again, which I was present at, uh, he told us all about his childhood. He told us his secret origin. He basically said when he was six, you know, in uh, in Basel, Switzerland, living in the countryside, elevated, you know, this is before EMF frequencies when everyone, like indigenous people still have now, have a more of a attuned sensitivity to nature. And so he basically said he was a mystic. He was a mystic child going through the fields. The colors would saturate. His consciousness would alter, Right. And he was used to altered states, and he retained that sensitivity. Now, that's not something he would talk about in chemical circles or in his, his you know, public discourses around that, but he admitted that to us, and that's on the public record from Basel, Switzerland. It's also on the public record that he was in um, basically a spiritualist groups, and spiritualism was very huge in the 19th century into the early 20th century. And, you know, as I said, there's a legacy of this, this around, around Switzerland. So the question is, you have a... Um, a, a chemist who is, you know, an immaculate chemist, a, a very accomplished professional in his field, who is experimenting with ergo right, you know, purportedly to look at, you know, helping with childbirth issues and and, um, and things like that, but who knows very well what what happens with ergo right derivatives and, and the psychoactive effects. 1938, with the rise of Nazism, is in a spiritualist group. In the novel. Uh, um, the uh, the analog novel written 922. This is exactly what happened. A chemist invents this thing, has a spiritualist group, and then you know decides do they let it out to, out to the world. And by 1938, I think the 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 thinking of some people within the psychedelic community is that the bicycle day story is again mythological, and it is the cover story for Albert Hoffman because. When it is translated into English, when he says, okay, in 1938, I made 25 variations of LSD. I had no, they had no effects, you know, tested them on animals, whatever, couldn't see anything happening, put them on a shelf. Then one day, April 16, maybe, you know, 1943, um, oh, my God, I, I had a strange presentiment. That's the, the English translation. In German, it's actually a lot stronger. It's like Vorgenhaft something like that, I, I'm mispronouncing it, but in German it means more than a, a presentiment, it means like a voice or it means that he was guided because he is a, a mystic and he is sensitive, 
something told him to go back to the LSD. So on that level, there's already, it's deviating from the scientific, uh, you know, sort of spectrum. But what people have said, David Nichols, who has sort of uh, taken up Alexander Shulgin's uh, preeminence as a um, the world's, I guess, leading chemist and has worked with the, uh, the American government in uh, looking at psychedelic chemicals and making them for uh, the, the FDA. He did a 2004 Mind States talk looking at Albert Hoffman's first April 16 trip. It lasted something like two hours. It was very unusual. It didn't hit any of the right beats if he had have got dosed. It didn't last long enough. The characteristics were there. People are thinking either Albert Hoffman had a mystical spontaneous experience, like a schizoid type of experience, or his sensitivity to the thing, but it, it doesn't add up. The other political issue is, with the rise of Nazism and Hitler conquering everything around, Albert Hoffman may have chosen to shelf the LSD-25, knowing that it was psychoactive, and wait until the, the tide of the war was turning in '43. But what happened around this time as well, to, to come full circle this story, is that the uh, Manhattan Project is taking off, the, uh, you know, the Americans are working with the atomic bomb, they're doing the testing. The first Manhattan Project testing of the bomb and the first uh, April 16 um, announcement by Albert Hoffman that, yes, LSD exists in the world, was six months apart. And so the psychedelic uh, folklore says perhaps this higher intelligence, when it couldn't get through the white picket fence mentality of the world, when the garden and the plant entheogens and Mother Nature had been totally, um, you know, like, uh, concreted over and, and distanced from by majority of people living in cities and the, the powers that be and the military industrial complex, it couldn't get through. The garden couldn't get through on that level. So perhaps the sensitivity of this mystic chemist gave him the strange presentiment, Albert, go back to your discovery, go have a look. Um, perhaps he was guided on that level as an antidote to the bomb because the only thing that the earth actually really is deadly, it fears, uh, you know, there can be a giant asteroid fall on the Earth. It'll be a, a shock, but the Earth will self-regulate and it will shrug that off over a couple of centuries or whatever. But radiation is the big killer. So in a self-equilibrializing system, which we know the Earth is, uh, it's got to counterbalance. And if some, it, you can see this map on YouTube. There's a video on YouTube that shows you all the atomic bomb blasts for the last, you know, 70 years or so, 60, 70 years. And... It's just, it's just endemic. It's just like bing, 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 bing. It was such a pressure on the planetary system that, yes, I think the planet must have, uh, you know, bounced back and fought back. And there we have uh, LSD. You know, it's like the Henry T. Ford of, um, of uh, psychedelics. It's coming out on the assembly line. It works in, you know, the most minute quantities. And it got out to the world and it shifted the consciousness of dominated culture, which was you know, are responsible for attacking the planet from within. And then you had the rise of, uh, which was already happening, but you have the rise of the anti-war movement of people, you know, who were changing their consciousness. And in, in, on a socio-political level, the argument is that, yeah, L the, the CIA gave LSD to the masses because they wanted to detourn or defang or stop the anti-war movement because once you took LSD, you didn't bother. I don't believe that's necessarily true. The turn on, the tune in, drop out thing came a bit later in the chronology, but um, you know it changed the consciousness of people to to really join the anti-war movement on some levels, but um, to to steer a different course with with uh, with their culture and with civilization. So there's lots of 
mythopoetic, romantic, uh, you know, strands to to look at here. And I really hope that uh, some cultural anthropologists do dig deeper with it because there's a lot of un- unanswered questions. Yeah. Wow. Wow, man. I didn't even really have to ask you any of my questions. You just ripped through all of them. <laughs> Uh, okay, so to bring to bring it back, and, and yeah, I agree completely. There is this global resurgence of these tools as medicines, and we do seem to have this. There, there does seem to be nature doesn't create junk, and and we, you know, the planet is kind of taking care of itself. But just to bring you back into the sphere of things, man, how how do you think ayahuasca tourism is affecting? what's happening why do you think people are more drawn to going into the jungle and taking this medicine acid in the 60s ecstasy in the 80s 90s and then plant entheogens predominantly spearheaded in the public consciousness by ayahuasca in the noughts so we get to this stage over white picket fence 50s change of consciousness in the 60s you know opening of the heart chakra in the 80s and we know the mdma basically became commodified and is now you know five bucks in your local pub everywhere in in the western civilization it gets absorbed and commodified but on a, a certain level something shifted there as well in in like the the morphic field or the the you know the the field of humanity in there but we 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 then became ready to go back to the to the jungle to the garden and we were ready for plant entheogens where you know we weren't ready to go back to the jungles in the 50s or 60s or 70s, some very uh, you know early adopters did. The, um, you know, like William Burroughs went down to uh, Pucapa and the jungles of Peru in the 50s and took ayahuasca and ran screaming, fleeing from the cosmic wet vagina that he experienced on the on the <laughs> the astral level. You know, because it, it shows. <laughs> that, that's a paraphrase, but it's something along those lines. Pat, really patent pending. Said. Um, but we weren't ready for it. It was so out there. The idea of nature, you know, as a consciousness and as an alive uh, sort of sentient being that actually we're embedded in, it's the equivalent of realizing we are microbes within a larger body and that we are not the center of things. You know, it's, it's, it's totally changes the whole human-centric perspective. It's like we are in the mother and we are one species amongst many. So anyway, so it's taken until, you know, the late 20th century and now into the 21st century where there's been this slow trickle of early adopters going back to the jungles because it was the time for it and it was ready for it and, and the, the, the garden was ready to re-embrace and the culture was ready to go looking for it. And so, you know, for 20, there's been ayahuasca lodges now in Peru for uh, over 20 years, uh, almost 25 years now. Uh, and so there's been a slow catering to the needs of the Western seeker in a more tourist type dynamic where originally it was a very you know terence and dennis mckenna up the jungle at uh la Chirera in 1971 you know it was a huge expedition that it, you had to be crazy to do it where now you just have to jump on a plane and you're fully catered to and get taken from the airport but this has been a slow cultural evolution and as the socioeconomic sort of uh you know vectors um develop around it it's become big money so number one I think that it's time for it. It's time for a reintroduction to planetary entheogens because it's not just about so-called drugs or recreational states or whatever. It's about medicines. And the biggest thing about the medicines is there is a spirit in the medicine and there is a spirit in us. And the two spirits is where the healing occurs. Many, many people are basically 
starting to um, revere and uh, deify ayahuasca, you know, the goddess, the madre. I, I have done that too. And there is, you've got to pay respect. You know, if you go to a, to a foreign country and visit the queen, you know, you do your little curtsy and do your bow. But on the inside, you know that you are a sovereign being too. So basically, you know, all the plant entheogens, I believe, are sort of sub-programs of the Gaian intelligence. So the Gaian intelligence is the macro um, program, right? And then um, there's sub-programs. And, you know, even this language, which now we know from computers, and my earlier argument was that the psychedelics stretched our, um, you know, the psychic lubricant stretched our consciousness to bring in terms. Because there's this whole thing. If you don't have a language to anchor the ideas, it's like a lucid dream. It comes and it goes and you don't, you come out of it and you can't remember or you can't describe it. If you can't describe the feeling, it's lost. And that's in 1984. That's all well. You know, that's what they were doing to try to um, uh, dilute the language down so people couldn't even understand the word rebellion or revolution or, or that there was something missing. They couldn't put their finger on it. So what entheogens do, and psilocybin especially, is it helps as a, as a linguistical catalyst um, it helps us, you know, stretch our, uh, our language, which is part of our consciousness, to anchor the feelings and anchor the experience. And so with ayahuasca, I'm talking about this idea of medicines, there are many, many different plant antigens. And I believe that you look at things, there's different bioregions on the planet. And looking at the planet as a macroorganism, it's like mapping the human body. So you're like, well, where are the calcium deposits in our body? Where are the white blood cells? You know, where's the iron go? How does the blood pump? There's a system to it. There's a rhythm to it. There's a reason for it. So same with the macroorganism of the planet. So, you know, we should not be taking uranium out of the ground and building freaking nuclear bombs from it. It's ridiculous. It's a double double whammy, not plus good. It, it's, you know, the Australian Aboriginals uh, believe that uranium is one of their sacred substances. They know it. They don't call it uranium, but it, or, or it, where they're digging it up here in Australia they're the sacred lands, and they're sacred because it has a substance in the land which changes the energetic, and they feel it. They know it. They know the energetics of that bioregion. In a similar way, the bioregions and the energetics are shaped in a causal relationship with the planet to secrete entheogens. This is both what Bear Owsley said as well, and Bear is just you know one of the prime founders of modern psychedelic culture, and he doesn't get a lot of airplay. A lot of his ideas, or some of his ideas at least, were taken up by Terence McKenna, who um, repeated and reformatted them. They both had this idea of planetary exopheromones. They're saying that what if nature, we, we look at different species and we understand that nature doesn't just talk in vibration sound patterns. She talks in chemical languages. She secretes these pheromones that certain uh, insects, uh, you know, secrete to engage with the plants. You know, I was talking to someone the other day and I was saying that the, uh, the DMT containing uh, acacias here in Australia, there's a certain variety uh, which are in synergy and partnership with the ants and the ants take the little bud of the plant and they carry it because it's got something they want in it and they bury it underground and that's where the, the, the DMT acacias uh, are ready and when fires go through, they germinate and then they, they it, it's incredibly synergistic. There's all these different species that work in concert. It's not just uh, Darwin's very flatlined, linear, non-psychedelic idea of survival of the fittest. That is at work within the system, but that's a, a, a 3D system. You've got to look at a 4 5D system and to see the cooperation models and the synergy and, you know, the way that nature works with all, all her 
or her creatures because they're all part of her. Their nature clothes herself in the skin of the species. I mean, that, that's it. That's really what is happening, right? That's the macro object. And that's how she self-regulates. So the medicines of the psychoactives, uh, McKenna and Owsley's theory was that they are exopheromones. They're working to regulate some of her other species, including the humans and some of the other higher mammals and primates that take mm. them. And they're there for a reason, you know? And things like the psilocybin mushrooms, they often, or certain strands of them, grow in regions which have been devastated and logged, where the trees have been logged, and in the wood chips is where the mushrooms grow. And Paul Stamets, has the, the famous mycologist, has his whole you know riff on all this. It seems to be that the earth is bio-remediating itself. It's repairing itself by secreting these things. And as part of that remediation, it's trying to fix the consciousness of the creatures cutting down the forest. Not just to weave the soil together and to bind the soil, which it does with certain plants like Latana and other plants, which work really well. The mushrooms are actually the first line of Gaian defense to change the consciousness of the invasive species. And you know, this is why you need to, we need to step up and look from a large perspective about what's going on. So with this understanding of entheogens and what their role is in the planetary ecology, their role is to engage with the species. And, you know, talking of us specifically... We know that, you know, it's what Terence called dominator culture. It's it's out of control. The monkeys are out of control and we are out of balance. It's conosquatsy. We're out of balance with nature. We don't understand right relationship. So all of the entheogens are secreted at different bioregions. And it's very important that people, in some senses, get to know uh, their local bioregions because you know, Australian Aboriginals have this understanding of the land and most Indigenous cultures do, you know, and a deep resonance with it. And, you know, if you're born on the land, you are Indigenous to the land as well. Or if you spend lots of time there and your energy is a meshing with the uh, the energetic fields, fields of the land, you are becoming part of that landscape. It structures your energy. It structures even your language. You look at certain tribal cultures and, you know, their language is, uh, is either speeded up maybe in cities or slowed down in the country. And it, it's, it's shaped on that level. But the, the entheogens that are available locally to you, and this changes with climate. You know, you look, you look at uh, different parts of the world have had entheogens previously throughout the historical record and the climate has changed and, you know, that they're not there anymore. But the earth keeps rolling it over and changing and growing more entheogens. So ayahuasca has been a very successful planetary avatar working on behalf of the Gaian mainframe. And she's not the only one. So she's been getting all the press specifically because she's a very effective healer. Now, there's lots of different angles to this and lots of different uh, levels of discourse we could talk about. In many indigenous cultures in South America, ayahuasca was traditionally just the Banisteriopsis carpi vine. And that's because it's a, you know... Um, it's a very good cleansing agent. It's a purgative. It cleans out any intestinal uh, bugs that people in the Pan-Amazon region may have. That's specifically why they were really using it. And the curanderos, or as we call them, the shamans, they would open up perhaps their energetic or visionary capabilities to travel on the astral and the interdimensional planes. But they would do that on behalf of their patients. The patients wouldn't do it in most many regions of, uh, of uh, South America. It's only been this cultural... Um, cultural appropriation and this supply and demand where Westerners 
because of our experiences in the 60s with, say, LSD and I would say our, uh, our relationship with television and our relationship with the cinema, which is over 100 years old, you know, when the cinema was first introduced and that people would see it, they could not... Uh, ascertain that it wasn't real. You know, they'd see a train coming up at, the, at them on the, on the black and white, you know, silent uh, movie theatre and they would scream and they would run and they, they had to get their heads around this magic of, of cinema because we are visually driven creatures and, you know, the, the, the eye is directly connected to the neocortex, yada, yada, yada. But in Western culture, we have relied upon the visionary uh, component I would say because we have lacked and we have atrophied the feeling component, the intimacy of feeling and intuition and connection to spirit. Because if you're a blind man and you're connected to spirit and feeling the spirits and feeling Mother Nature, that's all you need. You don't need to see it. It's all about the feeling. So many curanderos even say now it's not about the visions in the, in the ayahuasca experience. The visions are somewhat akin to if you're in the dentist's office and you're getting operated on, they put on the TV to distract you while the healing is happening. Really, that's, that's, that's you know, the baseline. But because Westerners want the visions because that makes it real to them, that makes it that they can believe it because they see it. And this is only one stage of it. It's only that first wave of trust of going, all right, something's going on, I can see it. But, you know, essentially a, a majority of the visions, um, according to my understanding of what the curanderos have told me, are basically processing of emotional catharsis and reactions and things happening within the body. Even when they're seeing interdimensional scenes and whatever, sure, maybe there's that aspect. But on some level, a, a great majority of the visionary component is uh, some reaction to the interaction of ayahuasca as it's healing you. It might be like, it's like a, you know, vegetal uh, psychoactive screensaver going on. There's something happening, maybe it's showing you stuff, but whatever. But they all say it's not about the visions, it's about going deeper with the work. You know, McKenna had this same riff in about talking about DMT. It was like if you, if you get to the level of like the uh, DMT elves or whatever and they're saying, yes, yes, watch, watch, look, look, it's like, no, nah, like, get beyond them. They're, they're sort of like holding your attention so you don't go deeper into the experience. There's something deeper than that. And that's where the really interesting stuff lies. So this idea of medicine in the West is basically they understand drugs and they understand the neurochemical component. But in indigenous cultures, a medicine means it has a spirit in it. And the spirit engages with your spirit. And that's where the healing, it just doesn't do the work. The spirit of ayahuasca isn't necessarily healing you. On a physical, um, you know, neurological level, yes, as a purgative, it is cleaning you out. But in regards to your emotional body and your traumas, which then get buried in your energetic body, it's asking you to step up and to see yourself and to revisit your traumas and then to let go of them. And it's asking you to recognize you are the medicine within as well. And so it's a spiritual act. And this is what the West is relearning. The word spirit is only, is only slightly more respectable in Western culture than religion, which is just gone. Like, let's just drop religion. No one, no one likes that term really, even though originally it means in Latin to reconnect or to reweave, which then makes us ask, what are we reconnecting to? It's nature. That's the original religion is nature. So there's all these stepping stones of understanding, and I see... The great majority of Westerners going down, you know, uh, in search of ayahuasca, in search of healing. It's not really a recreational thing, but people in the West, and Curanderos have said this, uh, you know, Guillermo Aravello says this in my, my book, um, I, uh, Awakenings, that, you know, um, the majority of people he sees in the West might not have a physical sickness, 
but they have a spiritual sickness, a sickness where they, they're disconnected. They don't feel connected to their own spirits or to the world spirit. And that's the real key. People are going through the ayahuasca experience to re-engage with this sense of spirit. And, you know, if you don't like that word, change it. But whatever it is, this energetic, you know, um, template that is alive and vibrant and is at the core of your being and is at the core of the planetary being. And not only, they're not separate. You know, we are the planet. We are the clothes, the skin of the planet. We're, we're, we're this thing that she has created and it's all in concert and it's all in uh, in at play with each other. That All the systems are engaging with another and there is a greater purpose even if we haven't discovered it yet. So, Rock, from a, from a pure Darwinian perspective, it seems that ayahuasca is operating outside of the confines of evolution and it's not even really playing by its rules because you have the two plant components that combine the copy and the chacruna and you know these plants that are similar to cannabis how cannabis manufactures molecules with the power to change our subjective experience of reality whatever we call consciousness right so we know that the plants don't want to be consumed if they have say bitter tasting alkaloid compounds and plants that do want to be consumed uh, as a reproductive strategy let's say they have an abundance of sugars like apples but in my personal experience, the ayahuasca brew blended from these two separate plants uh, is, to put it mildly, horrific. And if anything, it's the only thing I've tasted that gets worse with time. Do you feel there's a sense of having to earn the experience or there's perhaps a barrier to entry that these two plants are exhibiting to kind of safeguard its power? Because it seems that A, the two compounds, the DMT and the MAOI, do not occur together naturally in any single plant that I know of. Oh, and they B, do. They do. Okay. It's not, it's, it's not being widely reported. No, no one wants to, everyone out there harvesting. There's certain acacias uh, and certain plants that do contain both uh, the, the MAO and the, uh, the DMT. Um, and they have been used by indigenous cultural people. Oh, well, here's the thing. I agree, you know, there, there is a thing about the bitter plants. But the funny thing is, like, it's about alkalining your body, you know, versus the, the acidic sort of foods that we eat in Western culture, which cause sickness and cancers and things like that. I mean, the, the reason why the bitter things are often thought of as the medicines is that they're, um, you know, usually the things which are healthier for you. Uh, ayahuasca is not always bitter, though. I mean, it can be sweet. You can get some sweet ayahuascas depending on the curandera and the brew and how they're preparing it. Um, and, and there are natural sugars within ayahuasca, um, and they just need to be maintained and not boiled off and not, you know, lost in the, in the process. Um, but ultimately, here's the thing. It's, there's a, a commentator, Gail Hypine, who is a, a, a moderator on the ayahuasca.com forums. And you can look on the Eye Awakenings um, uh, YouTube playlist because there's a discussion with her from the, uh, the panel discussion after the film uh, screened in Portland uh, last year. And she's done a lot of uh, research, like uh, anthropological research on this and looked at the different tribes. And it's really only from the 1950s onwards that DMT in any large uh, quantities was used uh, by tribes in the, in the at least the Pan-Amazonian or the Peruvian sort of region. Before that, I mean, there's always anomalies and there's always, you know, exceptions to the rule. But it generally, it seemed that the, the ayahuasca was called ayahuasca because it was just the vine. And it has only been as mestizo use and then after the mestizos, the westerners and the gringos coming, have been after the, the qualities and the visionary component of the DMT experience in the brew that it has been added more often to the brews. So traditionally, as a medicine, ayahuasca has not even had the DMT. Again, it's I would say that it's a supply and demand and a um, an issue about the, the the people that want it. I mean, you know, most of the you know in the Shipibo tradition, which is predominantly 
what's becoming the, the global perception of ayahuasca is this, um, this evolution from the Shipibo tradition. They originally, the curandero would drink on behalf of the patient, but the patient would not drink ayahuasca. And so, you know, that got changed around with tourism. Um, and, so, and, and so what's happening very quickly now, the other thing I, I didn't mention is that uh, they, they all, the Chipibo also, you know, call uh, ayahuasca, one of the, the shorthands is, is jungle television. And their culture, because they've been I- embraced uh, by basically globalization, you know, Peru, Peru there's ayahuasca in Ecuador and Colombia and Brazil. Um, in many of those regions, though, it's still um, either within the churches of Santa Daime or um, in a more... Um, it's a different form. It's not. It's not driven by tourism. It's really the Peruvian tradition, which has proven successful as a global brand to bring ayahuasca to the world. And within the Peruvian tradition, it even narrows even further down to Pucapa and Iquitos, and maybe Tarapoto, but essentially Iquitos. So the Shipibo Kenobo tribe of that region have become the uh, the brand ambassadors of ayahuasca, if you will. And you know what they've also because they've been trading their handicrafts and their woven fabrics. And very quickly, you know, in the Peruvian um, historical record, they've gone through, you know, the mestizo Peruvians have been, uh, you know, under assault by Westerners, the rubber boom in the turn of the 19th, 20th century, um, the oil boom in the mid-20th century, now the ayahuasca boom. So they have constantly been colonized and exposed to Western culture. And if you go up the Amazon now in Peru, you go up on a slow boat uh, and there'll be, you know, truckloads of Inca cola on the boats and TVs and and it's just, it's, it's shocking. It's like, you know, not to say that people don't deserve a certain level of, of lifestyle choice, but it's the worst aspects of Western culture are getting exported to the Peruvians. And as part of that, things like, you know, the understanding of television and even now the internet and things like that get very fastly get fed back into their cultural matrix and put into their, their ceremonies. So they describe ayahuasca as, as jungle TV or they will um, incorporate, you know, UFOs as part of the motifs that, in their drawings and things that they say they see in the ayahuasca trance. And they will change the, uh, the, con- the constituency of the brew, of the, 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 the thing to make it more palatable to Westerners or they'll put more DMT in there because that's what the tourists want, you know. So... What we think of ayahuasca in this, this unbroken heritage and this sacred, uh, you know, experience, it's a, it is a sacred experience, but it's also basically it, it is the global sacrament. And in the West or in the, the, the one globalized world, which is dominated by Western interests, um, it is a brand and it is a constructed brand which has been uh, mutating and um, has been finessed and has been groomed just by cultural vectors um, to, to be not what it once was. And so, it, and it's still evolving, you know, there, there see, it seems to me that the consciousness itself seems to be this, this noble point at which we sort of filter information. And as we use these substances to affect our evolution and, and kind of transcend time space and bring in this, these higher dimensions of consciousness, we, we are moving more towards our true purpose and who we truly are. We're seeing that more and more and more. How, how do you think this is going to affect our goal as a species and within our, our role on the planet and in the galaxy? You asked some very good questions. I mean, these are the key things we need to be talking about as psychedelic culture. We, we shouldn't be going around the same old circles and, and even... As I said at the start, like, you know, regurgitating the same um, uh, tropes of like McKenna or Leary, other the great building blocks. But these are the, 
we're a different culture now. We're needing to face and integrate the, these type of things. So what is our purpose? And what is the purpose of us engaging with uh, psychedelics or entheogens? What do they reveal to us? And so what I would posit they reveal is that, yes, we are spiritual beings and we have a, an unbroken energetic connection to the web of life. We are embedded within uh, a living and loving organism on some level that is regulating its species and it too has a purpose within the larger galactic energetic chain of being within the galactic ecosystem and within the universal ecosystem and so you know it does get bigger and bigger and it's good not to lose track of things one of the most fascinating areas i find lately is is um um like astrobiology and uh astrophysics where they're getting some amazing, you know, proven scientific data that's changing everything about their understanding of the, the galaxy as an organism and how that trickles down to our solar system and then to our the sun and the earth and the relationships therein uh, as, you know, energetic sort of conduits and, and what's really happening. And so if you look at what our purpose is, I don't know, I, I, I lean upon, you know, this Armenian philosopher Gurdjieff. Have you heard of Gurdjieff? Um, and here's his whole idea of, you know, it's a spiritual sort of idea, but it's like energetically our um, our conscious labor on the earth, we're outputting energy. You know, we are energy receivers and transmitters. We're consciousness receivers and trans transmitters. And we, um, we're processing energy here on, in the planetary ecosystem along with the other species. And so our conscious uh, labor or our, our energetic output, this interdependent web of life, and the web of life continues beyond the planetary envelope. You know, it's it's a huge daisy wheel of cosmic creation where energy, it's all energy, but it's energy um, feeding and finessing itself through cascading uh, sort of machinery of stellar systems and planetary systems. And, you know, it's all it's all life on some on some level of, of being. Um, but here's his whole theory, Gurdjieff, of us feeding the moon, the moon feeding the sun, the sun feeding the galactic sun, and it goes on. And, and, and you need to... Input-output needs to be in equilibrium. Um, and there seems to be, uh, that resonates with me. In some of my experiences, if you look at the Aya Awakenings uh, film, which I do recommend you check it out, ayaawakenings.com forward slash watch, um, this, you know, there's a very deep 10-minute uh, or so 5-MeO-DMT sequence back when it was legal, done in Peru in 2006. Um, but in, in that, and that, that's the only time I've done 5-MeO. And, you know, it's it's the... You know, they, they say it's like the, 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 the star on the top of the Christmas tree and all the other entheogens are baubles on different branches of the tree, but 5-MeO is the white light tunnel Godhead experience. And in my experience, that was true. And you go into very deep bardo states, which are beyond the normal tryptamine DMT levels of engaging with entities or visions or geometries. It's pure white light tunnel. And my shorthand for it was of being fully conscious in this experience. It was like the superhadron collider of hyperspace, right? And I could feel, and again, this is it. When you have a, a near-death experience and the endogenous DMT in your body at, you know, they say at birth, at death, at childbirth, whatever, there's different times in your life when you, you have this naturally occur. It's this deep connection to spirit. And what it shows you is the deep bardo states of where we come from. This is what I believe. And I was feeling this. And we're talking about visions and seeing and how Westerners are so hooked on the visions. When you're in the white light 5-MeO experience, there's nothing and everything. It's the void. And the void is pregnant with consciousness and energy and it looks like nothing. It's the blank slate. 
but it's the void from which all things spring, right? It's the Godhead, as the mystics have said all through, all through time. But the thing I felt, and this is why we need to sharpen our feeling and our intuition and all these parts of our capacity of being human that Western-dominated culture has suppressed so we can just have logic and have, you know, physical existence and be logical about it, all that sort of more feminine intuition and feeling is part of the human package. And when you go into these spiritual realms, and especially in the white light tunnel where there is nothing to see, all you've got left is your intuition. And on that level, it's all about feeling. And what I felt was that there was this force, there was this omnipresent being, and it was there was waves of energy coming at me. And those waves of energy were interacting with my energetic field. And they were... Um, rippling through it and intersecting with it and then opening my field up and it was like the drop was rejoining the ocean and it didn't end there what I, I realized as the waves were coming at me they would hit they would cascade and what would come off me was my vibrational field um, memories like everything I had stored within everything you experience you store within your energetic body it's, it's there within you it's shaped you it's formed you and it's left an impression like data on a hard drive right so imagine our soul is some type of um, energetic uh, gestalt hard drive and everything we experience is stored on it and when we go full circle in the reciprocal relationship with with this divine cosmic intelligence at the, at the, who's guiding everything, it, it feeds off the data. It, the data comes off us and goes, we're freed of the burden of everything that we have experienced and we remember that we are it and we always were it and the wave-particle dynamic thing, wavicle thing comes full circle and it's like, oh, yeah, that's right, I'm it. I mean, that's what, that's what I felt, right? But the interesting thing, which, which is often overlooked, is that it was... And feeding is a loaded, you know, term, but it was reading the data and it was getting something from it. It was growing from, uh, and this is the thing, you know, they say that all the mystics in the world spend all their time trying to get back up to God. And when you get there, what do you find? God is in a process of incarnating, coming down here and being us. Why? I mean, because it, it, it's a feedback loop. We know nature is an equilibrium. It works in cycles. It works in rhythms. No energy is lost. And it's very lean and elegant and efficient in what it does. I liken it to the condensation cycle of moisture. It goes up. It comes down. It goes up. It comes down. It feeds through. But in the process, something is gained. Something more than just the entropic loss is created. It's information. And information is basically the building blocks of life, right? And so... The Godhead is feeding from um, incarnating as what appears to be individuated entities on the material plane. Because when they, when the forms give way and the soul or the the energetic uh, hard drive is released back into the ocean of the Godhead, it has gained more information. And so it's the feedback loop. <laughs> and I can't remember your original question, but I hope that. I hope that <laughs> Do you, do you feel that we've reached kind of this palpable marker or nav point as a species deep down? We're kind of over this physical manifestation form and we're yearning to move beyond it and gain more actual understanding. We've kind of won this chapter of the life game. Uh, we're kind of done with the monkey meat puppet body and we want to peek behind the veil and kind of talk to the wizard as an equal. What does what the next chapter entail, you think? I don't think so. I think that's essentially a, a transhumanist wet dream. And as I said, you know, <laughs> it's, it's like... The Godhead is 
rapidly and always omnipresently incarnating as matter, as species, as life, right? And so on one level, you know, you look at different mysticisms and you look at this idea of getting off the wheel of karma or of getting back into the center of the target and rejoining, you know, God and, and not having to come back and incarnate. And Western culture that is relearning spirituality is having to figure out the, its own game rules and its own contours in maybe taking on board some other cultures, you know, um, spiritual spiritual maps at the same time. But I, I think it comes back to, again, what, what we've discussed already is that because the traditional Western culture has been distanced and devoid of a connection to spirit, it creates an equal and opposite reaction of a hunger for spirit. And so in that hunger, we are engaging with entheogens, we're learning that the, the you know, the energetic uh interdimensional and galactic ecology is full of entities and spirits and, uh, you know, life, essentially. And uh, then there's this romanticism to let go of the physical body. But if you really um, have a spiritual practice and hone it and um, work at it, it's about honoring the gift of the vessel to hold the divinity that we really are. And, you know, I, I really believe this. It's like, you know, if... If you have an acorn tree and you have just the, the, the seed of it, and if it's cut down early, it hasn't reached its full fruition and its full potential that has been invested in it through the life process, you know. And so I, I believe that the best way and the best approach to spirituality and the best use of entheogens, I'm really getting to this stage, and I, I think it's an exciting stage, of getting to um, work with modalities like yoga and meditation and, you know, uh, breathing, you know, sort of yogic breathing practices to hone my body and to, and to make that a better vehicle because it also improves my spirit and my consciousness and then it also makes that consciousness and spirit more able to navigate and to be effective in those entheogenic realms. And I think that we're coming to a unification of very archaic cultural uh, lessons and modalities Ayahuasca in Peru, um, and we had a yoga teacher there who was great, and she had this book on Kriya Yoga. It's like a, it's coming back to popularity. It's sort of the basis for Kundalini Yoga, but it was like a thousand-page book, and I was reading chapters over many days, and they were describing what is consciousness, what is presence, uh, what is the visionary state, uh, what happens when you get your symbols. So many things that I've experienced with the catalyst of engines happens naturally with deep states of meditation and many of these cultural traditions all the way back to the original sanskrits and the mudras and the asanas they practiced um you know entheogenic states of mind they had their own uh catalysts and they were entwined with their practice it only became a left hand right hand path and politicized as the entheogens fell out and got into the priest crafts and different traditions and then um, you know, then they just kept them with the, with the modalities without the entheogenic catalyst. But the root origin of many, many of, like, basically all the world religions, the Western religions, the Abrahamic religions, had an entheogenic catalyst. And even in the Middle Eastern and different traditions of consciousness, they had entheogenic traditions as well. And it wasn't about just using entheogens or just using consciousness modalities. It was about together... They, are, they have the same root structure and they are more effective. And essentially, I do believe as well that the end result is, you know, what Kesey said in the 60s about, you know, can you pass the acid test? It's about graduating from the catalyst 
um, and being able to do it ourselves. And what I feel is that we've only got like six to 10,000 years of recorded history. And I feel that at some stage within the world ages, we did have the ability to endogenously engage with these potentials. We know that with um, the EEG and the MRI scans they've done with uh, substances like psilocybin, LSD, and ayahuasca in, in different tests, they now have proven that they switch off the default mode network in the brain, these regional clusters of the brain, which are engaged with um, maintaining the sense of ego and identity. And when they switch those sections of the brain off, the brain at large receives more signal. And it's not the substance like psilocybin. LSD is metabolized in the human body and brain within 19 minutes. They proved that in the 1960s. You don't usually feel the effects before half an hour. So it's not, it's not the, the catalyst. It's our brains. And so with the, the, all of these things, including ayahuasca, seem to be training wheels from the planetary mainframe to go, all right, monkeys, let's do it one more time. Here we go. I've been working over generations to get you ready for this. And so I believe the next step is endogenous. It's endo, as Bruce Damer, who's an amazing mind, would say. And I've interviewed him. And it's like it's the ability to endogenously um, achieve these states of mind because nature's built it in. We have you know, a multitude of tryptamines. We have NNDMT. We have uh, 5-MeO-DMT in our in our, our, our wetware, in our, in, our, in our bodies and in our brains. We, nature has threaded the neurotransmitter of DMT in us, in the plants, in many of her species who are sentient to, to a level to connect us with the ability to be conscious. You know? And so I believe that all of this is just a stepping stone in history to regain basically yeah, five biogalactic godhead consciousness as divine beings and to be to know our place not in the web of life and to be stewards of the planet and you know it's it's i suspect it's not going to be what we think it is you know it's not it might not even be us in the starring role it's like it, it's us as a bridge to what's coming next and i think that the the psychedelic journey is now evolving into the entheogenic journey and i really do suspect that the entheogenic journey will evolve over the next generation into the endogenous journey of our ability to connect to what we really are which is you know the planet wearing us as as her skin you know it's, re it's really amazing man that you that you touch on on these these subjects i i just think i i agree with you completely that this transcendental knowledge is kind of where we're moving and as we deviate from the materialism and and this possessive quality that that humans have and, and we shed off these sort of layers and we pick up this understanding that you know perhaps wealth is the acquisition of information and our own personal evolution that perhaps these ideas will be less of a countercultural movement and more of a normal thing well this is an interesting thing because ayahuasca is now so hip and trendy with you know all the the yogi community not just of california and north america but it's it's the people who are already engaging with healthy lifestyle diets, yoga, meditation, who are now embracing specifically ayahuasca as a medicine. And so this merging of the modalities is already well underway. And, you know, it, it, it's just helping uh, go deeper to discover what the potentials are and to, to further, further our abilities. Yeah. Well, it seems like the scariest part of the ayahuasca visionary state is that the medicine is actually, it really is healing you on a physical, emotional, spiritual, even sexual level. And then you kind of have to come to terms that there really isn't anything more frightening than you have to now take responsibility for the world around you. 
because now that you're healing yourself physically and now you have this vision of what you're led here to do on earth and like, holy shit, I can fully realize this vision and nature can even help conspire to help me actualize this. There's something almost innately horrifying about that. Well, that's taking responsibility is the mark of an adult. And then that's the thing, you know, and basically different commentators have said over the years that basically the 20th century and maybe the psychedelic experience seems to be this uh, initiation of um, teenage years of sort of puberty and going through this this change from the child consciousness. And you can look at even things like Tim Leary's, you know, eight circuits of neurogenetic evolution. He sort of mapped that out and tried to give a, a, a framework to it as well, that we go from a larval stage to a post-larval stage. And, you know, whatever language you give it, you can see that there is a journey happening and evolution has stages and steps. Um, and, you know, to be opening up the, uh, the energetic realms that psychedelics and entheogens have done uh, is a change in consciousness, which is perhaps that, that change from child to teenager. And now we seem to be developing from teenager to adulthood and being an adult means taking responsibility you know for yourself for your health for your well-being for your family for your tribe for your planet you know to know what you're really in and it, it it's hard it's hard at times i mean it's, it's often hard you know because it's relentless it's ongoing it's life but you know if we know what we are embedded within uh, we have a greater capacity to uh, to go with that rhythm and to go with the energies of that and not be against the flow, which is what, you know, traditionally Western culture for the last few thousand years has been. It's been, you know, not plugged into the right flow um, of what, I guess, you know, the dream spellers and Mayan indigenous culture call uh, synchronous time. If you go with the flow of energies of the way the planet's rolling, then it's a lot easier. It's like... It's like a sailboat catching a wind, you know, and you, you get to go a lot faster and you're supported in that. But, yeah, I feel that. I mean, I, I do ayahuasca retreats every every three months in Peru, and it is a beautiful, amazing healing, cleansing experience, and I'm getting more and more out of it, you know, myself doing long 10-day retreats as well and working with people and facilitating. And then, you know, I get back to Iquitos or I get back to Australia, and it's like, do I have that cup of coffee? Do I go back to my, my lifestyle choices? Do I do this? Have I picked up the yoga? Have I locked in um, all the things that I've felt and I've realized I really need to be doing? And I haven't quite yet. You know, here and there I do, but it's because the same stresses are there in our lives. So number one, I think, you know, the value of the medicines is great because it cleans us out, it heals us, but it is asking us to take responsibility to make changes and to make changes that are going to um, serve us as human beings and as spiritual beings having a human experience. And, uh, you know, as we come together as a community of a shamanic community or entheogenic community or people who have had these experiences and we hang around each other and support each other and eventually that whole 60s idea of going back to the land and the tribe and having your own little, you know, community that you live with and support each other, that's where the the reflection and the support of the the other and the tribe is really important because when you have other people around you who understand and are on the same spiritual path, then you can support each other in the the choices you make and in in you know holding that vibration and that energy. Rock, uh, you know, Ter McKenna had this idea about time wave zero and and novelty theory and this 26,000-year orbit and this galactic center, and you've talked about it a, a bit as well. I, I'm just wondering what your opinion of 2012 was and what you think, where are we now? Like, what, what do you notice is happening with the planet and information now? Well, you know, I mean, 
again, it's like it's like what's happening with ayahuasca. Twenty twelve became a brand. It became a brand that became a huge Hollywood disaster movie. You know, it became a Daniel Pinchbeck book. It became commodified and detourned. But you know, the, what the Westerners understood about twenty twelve wasn't at all what the indigenous Mayans called it. To them, it was zero point zero point zero point zero point zero on their wheel of time. And all that meant is that the clock ticks over, and then it starts again in a new new age. <clears throat> and you know, we 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 are basically living in larger geological tracts of time on the edge of the next ice age. And if the other area I would uh, really point people towards to research is um, uh, basically, you know, a lot of climate scientists, reputable people, scientists who have been silenced by different facets of the industry developing around this. But everyone is, is saying that uh, in that field is saying, yeah, we are on the, the, the cusp or we're going through the process of moving into the next ice age. This is right on the, the times that we're living through that's meant to happen. We're seeing the buildup of, of things happening in the world, which is like a, a buildup of energy, which will then dissipate and then result in the ice age. But anyway, these are the world ages. You know, These are the way that things shift and, and things turn. Um, and um, sorry, what was your question again? I was just asking about 2012, 2012. time wave, time, so, time so wave zero. Basically, the 2012 thing is the Mayans understood there was cyclic time and there, there are different world ages and there are different energies of those different world ages uh, and the things start again. So potentially, because we're, we're coming up to great transformations physically in the world, the whole idea of disaster, which was glorified by Hollywood, um, is potentially still true. But it's not about focusing on that because it's this language because underneath that it's transformation. That is the key word. The planet as a macroorganism is growing and evolving. If you, um, if you look at the, the electric universe theory or you look at the idea of Pangaea, you know, when we were a supercontinent hundreds of millions of years ago, the, the shape of the Earth, the Earth itself as an organism has been growing as a sphere and expanding outwards. And that's why the continents have broken and are in the, the position and shapes they're in because the Earth is actually growing, you know, like a, like the sphere that's expanding. And so transformation is constant in larger, um, in larger um, tracts of time. And indigenous cultures all over the planet um, have left us world, word maps in their mythologies uh, pointing towards the fact that this happens regularly, you know, yet sure, transformation may, may seem to be destruction, but, you know, in the same way that a forest fire may sweep through uh, the bush, it will germinate certain seeds into being that rely on that intensity of fire or kill off a certain amount of trees, whatever, but then the next species will come through. This is nature's way. And so, again, we are so hooked on to um, human anthropomorphism and this idea of us as the, the dominant species and us as the, the conquerors of the earth and, and that we're what it's about, and not just us, but our physicality and our being. So the entheogens are also helping us get over ourselves of the fact that we are a spirit. You know, we are a spirit being that we've had brief tastes of leaving this body and traversing into the uh, interdimensional ecology of energy. And we understand, you know, to some degree that it, it is possible and it's out there and it's happening. And so we're getting tasters to go, don't, don't fixate on the body. So the physicality of the planet, you know, it, it's, it's, it's physical mass and it, all its, its, its manifestation mm -hmm. is just the vehicle to contain the spirit. And so when we're going through the sixth great species extinction, they tell us, which in itself tells us there's been five before. It's, it's okay, it happens, right? So don't fixate on it. If you, if you have an appreciation of spirit and of the journey and the beauty of the journey, 
um, you give yourself up. Give yourself up when it's time because the, the, the physical form will, will fall away and then the spiritual energetic goes back into the great pool of becoming, which then is reformatted into the next thing. It's like we've just got to get over ourselves. Rock, I noticed that um, there's, a, there's a heavy use of imagery and mental focusing devices that a lot of the shamans use uh, down in South America. And it kinda, they say that it allows them to seek and find certain information when they're surfing the cosmic internet, so to speak. Do you find it useful to set clear parameters or coordinates when we are to you know, kind of search through this limitless realm of alternate realities in that space? Well, yeah, it, it is. It depends what your intent is. You know, when I work on uh, on retreats, facilitating with people, we do a few workshops on setting intents and what the value of that is um, uh, to help people. Then, you know, focus on that in their journeys. We also work on different skills that people can develop into helping them navigate altered states, uh, especially if people get stuck in negative states or in trauma or in some state which they perceive as negative. Um, there can be experience in that, there can be value in that, but if it's just going on all the time, you want to be able to change the channel. So there's different sort of NLP type of techniques and different sort of anchors that you can create for yourself by thinking of certain things which break state and, and put you into a different frame of, of reference. There's also breathing techniques. You know, there are mudras and uh, different, you know, things you can do um, to help um, help you potentiate your experience. And... You know, it, it is quite limitless that that inner inner space uh, terrain, that terra incognita, and so I think that yeah, to to not be just the babies flailing around in hyperspatial kindergarten, we need to be able to learn to crawl and then to to walk and then to fly or run. You know, we need to be able to. If this is the thing, if, if we are, if we see both the Earth as a macroorganism and our human bodies as a microorganism as vessels for containing spirit. And it's like baking a cake. Eventually, you've got to take it out of the oven. And, you know, it's like, so this is a, a stage we're going through potentially to then join the interdimensional ecology where the real action is happening, right? And so if we're training and learning on that same metaphor of, you know, crawling and walking and running and whatever, eventually, imagine, imagine if you're, if, if, if we have, if every human is basically a shaman, or what we now call a shaman, in the ability to traverse the worlds, to engage with the larger reservoir of intelligence and of beings that are just behind the curtain there and have been waiting for us just to, to evolve to the point of consciousness to recognize that they're there. And so all these training wheels, it's like, yeah, let's sharpen our blades. Let's sharpen our ability. Let's uh, take on the responsibility as adults and as entheogenic beings to engage with what is really there, what the web of life is, and how far it extends into the uh, the inner space ecology. It, truly phenomenal information, man. And, and this, it's a lot to really take in. And I just want to give you the chance. Is there anything that you want to get out? Well, I, I, I've been working on my own personal feedback loops of late. So I'll just put a, a, bit, a few plugs in here that I'm, I'm rebuilding rackrazam.com. Uh, and I'm going to be off offering a subscription model to subscribers uh, so they get like fresh content every week, a lot of audio talks and chats. And I do a, a monthly podcast in a perfect world myself talking to other um, notables within the consciousness and shamanic sort of fields. 
but I also I'm also regularly traveling the world and meeting up with people all the time, and they're really great conversations and out there stuff and. Um, the, the gold is often not uh, not put out publicly, so I'm going to be offering that as a subscription model to help support me to continue doing the work uh, of getting good information out there and creating media artifacts like the Eye Awakenings film. Uh, the Eye Awakenings film is going to be screening in uh, San Francisco and Oakland on April 13. Uh, I'm going to be in the States passing through on the way to my next retreat. And uh, yeah, I'm really starting to work as well with some of the West Coast San Francisco-based uh, neuroscience. Uh, I've got this new word, I call it neuroshamanism. It's basically using um, a lot of the technologies of, you know, uh, virtual type of technologies and the EEG machines and like the emotive devices and all that sort of uh, hard technology uh, capabilities to then look at uh, altered states and to look at uh, the shamanic sort of paradigm and to try to get more data and not just in a clinical way. We want to be able to satisfy uh, scientific inquiry, but we also want to be, as I was saying before, be able to improve our ability to go into these states. And I think the, the blend between uh, uh, neuroscience and shamanism is um, sort of the next step, and that's sort of where I'm headed. So I'll be doing a, a public discussion about that on April 13 in Oakland. Uh, people can um, check out that they'll be announced pretty soon. And um, just maybe people could check out the film, iawakenings.com. Uh, that's out there. And, yeah, I um, enjoy doing these discussions. And it's really interesting because the global community is growing. There is, as we said with ayahuasca, there is potentially literally millions of new people who have at least heard about ayahuasca. If even, like, 2% of those actually start to work with entheogens, where we're basically going to be probably doubling what is the existing entheogenic, shamanic, psychedelic community. And it is growing, and it's not even maybe as apparent, you know. So I really uh, encourage everyone to reach out to people around them uh, to support other people who are coming into uh, these fields and these modalities and to uh, keep doing the good work, yeah. Rock, I've only known you for about 90 minutes, but I think I love you, man. This is this is <laughs> phenomenal. Thank you so much for being here, Rock. This is the human experience. Dr. G, you got anything else for our guest, man? Rock, can't thank you enough, man. That was a, that was a true pleasure. It was a pleasure, guys. Let's, let's do it again sometime. You Absolutely. heard it here, guys. This is the human experience. We're going to get out of here. We're going to bend reality back and head back to our bodies. Thank you so much for listening, <laughs> and we are out. <laughs>